Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Jason Schulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today on the podcast is Annabelle Cooper. She's Associate Professor in the Gender Studies Program at the University of Otago. She's here to talk about her new book, Filming the Colonial Past, The New Zealand Wars on Screen. It's published by Otago University Press in 2018. Annabelle, welcome to the show. Good to be here, thank you. Well, it's great to have you on. So Annabelle, maybe we can start, you know, for those that may not know the history of New Zealand, what were the New Zealand wars? Uh, these wars are the wars that uh, run through quite a bit of the uh, 18, 19th century in New Zealand, uh, beginning in the 1840s, uh, where there's a, um, some, a series of conflicts largely in uh, Northland, uh, in the North Island. But then the, the, the major events of these wars occur from 1860 through to 1872 across the centre of the North Island. There's a a cluster of interrelated wars that uh, really roll through the North Island over this period. And they begin begin largely as wars uh, which see the uh, imperial forces, the British imperial forces, oppose resistant Māori, but then increasingly over time become uh, wars in which it's the colonial troops, as the imperials leave, it's colonial troops opposing resistant Māori, but also allied with uh, with increasing numbers of uh, Māori tribes as well. So they they uh, often perceived as uh, imperial versus resistant Māori, but uh, there's quite a lot of crossing of sides uh, among different tribes as well, and a sprinkling of Europeans who fight with resistant Māori too. So the book is about the New Zealand wars on screen. Why have the New Zealand wars been such a rich source material for films? I think firstly because, uh, as we know, wars uh, attract filmmakers. They provide a, a whole a whole series of reasons why they become good drama. Uh, it offers an exciting past for filmmakers. And I think too... Uh, in the New Zealand context, it meant that filmmakers could align New Zealand history with uh, some familiar imported genres and particularly, obviously, the Western in our case. So they provide action, they provide pathos and tragedy uh, and uh, a lot of stories of injustice, uh, which all uh, are the stuff of uh, dramatic, uh, dramatic film and also compelling documentary. But I think it's just as important uh, that they are wars that challenge the idea of New Zealand exceptionalism in relation to race relations. So uh, while it's often said that uh, in New Zealand we try to forget the New Zealand wars, we try to forget colonial conflict, uh, but filmmakers, in fact, have been uh, extremely interested in the in the much more morally ambiguous dimensions of the New Zealand wars as opposed to uh, the world wars, which haven't really attracted quite 
such interesting filmmaking. Um, so the New Zealand wars really flout the prevailing myths of national identity, and so they lead filmmakers into quite interestingly ambiguous territory. And I think there has also been attractive as well as as well as attracting the political commitments of of filmmakers too. Your book covers a, a variety of different genres, including feature films, documentaries, television, kind of new media. How filmmakers choose to tell the stories about the New Zealand wars varies from you know one film to the next. D- does it matter when the filmmaker is making their kind of production? Does it matter the time that they're living in? Enormously, and uh, and the the book really charts uh, some very big changes over time. Uh, so if, if I look perhaps at two different productions, the the very earliest productions, uh, films made in the 1920s in the silent film era uh, by the pioneering filmmaker Rudel Hayward, uh, uh, when he was making his first films in the 1920s, there are still uh, people for whom the wars were part of living memory, but they're also working in the immediate post-World War One period when, uh, when far from fighting each other, Māori and Pākehā had, had been off to uh, fight in, in Gallipoli and Europe together. So uh, they're also imbued with this powerful sense of a duty to remember that comes in the wake of the First World War. And so at that time, there's, there's an enormous emphasis on national unity that uh, that Hayward is invested in. So his films, although they're about colonial conflict, are, uh, are shaped around stories that construct narratives of, of ultimate unity. Whereas if you look ahead 60 years to the late 1970s, early 1980s, uh, that's a period of, uh, as it was internationally, of decolonization of independence movements and quite a surge of protest around uh, around colonial issues uh, at that time, largely uh, impelled by a rising uh, and increasingly educated generation of young Māori, but a lot of sympathetic Pākehā as well. And so the issues here are land and culture loss and language loss, and they're, and they're part of a very uh, a very turbulent period. Uh, and so there's two productions uh, that come out of that time, uh, the uh, docudrama series The Governor and the film Utu, and uh, and Utu in particular is 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 marked by a very recent event. The uh, uh, the in New Zealand the very famous Springbok tour where uh, the New Zealand Rugby Union uh, had flouted the international sp- sporting boycott of South Africa and, and invited the Springbok rugby team to tour New Zealand, resulting in a in a huge national uh, rolling series of protests. So. Which is shot just the year after those protests, and it's marked by this profound sense of uneasiness and of uh, certainties around race relations really falling away, and uh, and a and a, a real challenge to the to those uh, myths of national identity that uh, you know that we do race relations uh, very well. You know, we should say we are recording this uh, the week that uh, Jeff Murphy, the, the director yes. of Utu, has, has passed away. 
how come that film has been able to kind of break through, uh, you know, more more commercially and, and popularly uh, to, in, the, in, in a way that, you know, I think most New Zealanders probably know the film in a way that most people may not know the work of Hayward. Yeah. Well, I think uh, Hayward, uh, his first films were silent, they're black and white, and they, are, they show their age perhaps a little more, but the mm-hmm. uh, two came out of the, of the first flush, really, of the re-emergence of independent filmmaking in New Zealand and, and was the first, uh, perhaps not the very first, but one of the, one of the first very successful films of that that period. It, it got a lot of international praise, and I think really uh, it was part of the imperative of the time uh, that made it such a successful film. Most of the people who worked on that film uh, had been involved in the Springbok tour, and 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 they brought to the film an enormous uh, commitment to the performance and uh, an intensity to the performance. Uh, that has that has really helped to make the film endure. Although I have to say that Murphy's script and direction was uh, was uh, also very spectacular, and the film does wear very well. Another filmmaker that that you know may not necessarily be a household name uh, is Vincent Ward. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about kind of his life and career. Uh, well, Vincent Ward is really the next generation from Murphy. Um, although in the way of the New Zealand film industry, they have also worked together. He's some, but he's, he's had a very different kind of career. Uh, he's worked very much, whereas Murphy was uh, very engaged with the Western and with filmmakers like Kurosawa Woods, imperatives are much more towards uh, European art cinema. But he began as a very young man and his at the age of 21, 22, he decided that he would like to make a film about uh, people living in a very remote Māori community. And he went off into one of the most remote uh, uh, areas of the time where uh, uh, in Te Horawera, a very remote uh, mountainous um, forested region, uh, and lived with a... A, an elderly woman and her um, intellectually disabled son um, for a period of about, of about a year and a half and made a, a, a documentary called In Spring One Plants Alone, which was really a fly-on-the-wall intimate documentary about this family. But then uh, that precipitated him into a, into a long-term interest in cultural encounter and transformation through crossing cultures. And he came back uh, in 2006, I think he was making that film, 2005-2006, to revisit that early film and made the documentary Reign of the Children, which which took that film back into its much longer history uh, and and situated the, the these two people within the colonial past and the past of the New Zealand wars, traced the difficulties, the disadvantages, and the mental illness uh, suffered by the son uh, uh, in that larger historical context of the aftermath of the war. So a very, very different kind of film uh, than Murphy's, um, a very, very personal film. You say that to date there has been no dramatic feature film from a Maori filmmaker that is primarily about the New Zealand wars. 
Uh, why, why do you think that is and what do you think the ramifications are? I think increasingly as time has gone by, the costs of his, making historical film have risen so that so that it's become more and more difficult to make and and it has become almost impossible to make without international funding and major international funding, even though there's some New Zealand funding available. And that makes that really changes the terms of how it's possible to make film uh, in the local context. Uh, so it means, for example, that you must speak to an international audience. And uh, and Ward in a, another feature film he made found that that created a lot of dilemmas. But I think that's really quite taxing for a Māori filmmaker who has many commitments to uh, their local context, to to family and to um, uh, to tribe if they're going to be uh, telling stories about a tribal past. Uh, and uh, and so they're. Uh, they have the, have commitments that Parker filmmakers don't, uh, but the attachment of international funding to to how you make a film also generates enormous complexities uh, to make a film uh, about this very local, very personal past that is also internationally legible uh, creates all all kinds of dilemmas, and I think. It, Increasingly, it's impossible for anyone to make historical film, uh, in fact, about these wars, but particularly for Māori because of the uh, of the commitments that they have to their communities. Annabelle, last question before I let you go: Was there a film, whether you know, documentary, feature, uh, television, something uh, on the internet, new media, something that you discovered in your research that you didn't know about that you were, you know, pleasantly surprised to discover? Oh, many things I think, but actually one of the stories that I that I found particularly fascinating, and it really uh, it really pointed to me me to an important thread in the book, which is just how important Māori agency has been right through, and and the requirement of that film uh, as a collaborative medium uh, places on filmmakers to. Uh, to negotiate with Māori all the way through. But in the making of the Tukoti Trail, uh, Rudla Hayward uh, relied on uh, particular Māori informants, uh, but there were a group of, of people in the broader community uh, who did, were not very happy uh, with the film uh, as he was making it, um, largely because of, its, of how they thought it might portray Tukoti. And so in order to object to the film, they asked him for the scenario, which he never quite got around to providing. But then having failed to get it from him, they were able to go to their local MP, uh, Sir Aperanangata, who then went to the then Minister of Internal Affairs, Sir Maui Pōmari, who are you know, both very, very well-known Māori parliamentarians, uh, and and it was then taken to the uh, newly established censor at the time. So to me, it's very interesting to see the level of um, access, I guess, to the to the modern state that Māori have 
uh, in being able to manage the way that uh, a story that they held very dear was told. So that was a fascinating little glimpse into uh, into an unexpected history, I guess. Annabelle, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. That's Annabelle Cooper. She's associate professor at the University of Otago. Her new book is Filming the Colonial Past, the New Zealand Wars on Screen. It's published by Otago University Press in 2018. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.